So I got some good news on my little fractured ankle uh, this week. It turns out that in addition to the fracture, there's no other soft tissue damage. So it looks like I am not looking at uh, surgery of any of any variety. And actually, I will be in this thing for uh, could be three more weeks or it could be two more months, depending upon, as my orthopedist said, and I love his choice of words, how compliant you are. Basically, it means learn to sleep in this thing and only take it off when you shower. So hopefully it won't be too much longer. I'll be sort of whole in body at least again. But I got to tell you, even if I had to have surgery on this, it would not be the worst thing that ever would have happened. Hopefully ever would happen to my leg. The worst thing happened, at least at this point in my life, in the summer of 1984, when I was running back on sort of a cloudless but very dark night to um, to my home from a friend's home, which is really just right up the alley, and I hit a parked car. Those of you who want to laugh, go ahead, please. Come on, I know you want to. Yes, I hit a parked car. I absolutely just, uh, my, my tibia looked like a staircase all the way down. It cost me about half the classes that I couldn't take my first year of high school. And more important to me at the time, it cost me the entire social scene of the first year of high school as well. It cost me two surgeries, some time in a wheelchair, a bunch of times of crutches, three different pastor casts, an air cast, a fiberglass cast. And nine months later, I was, well, I was a little bit better. So... When I look back on that incident, I got one question I was asking myself. Why the hell was I running in the first place? Now, I'm being honest with you. I don't remember being afraid of the dark. This is what I remember. That because it was this alley that ran perpendicular and ended basically right where my house, my parents' house began, right at the driveway. And I could see up on the second floor as I started to get closer, I could see my mom in the light in the window Uh, sort of putting a bunch of stuff away from the vacation from which we had just returned a day before. And something about that sort of sped me up. (laughs) I darted towards the light and wham, head over heels, glasses flew off. I think we found them a week later in the bushes somewhere. This message series that I begin today here uses that image, that experience as something of a metaphor. Welcoming lights and welcoming darkness is about learning, all of us together, me included, about not racing towards the light, perceiving that we need to be there someday beyond the darkness, not wanting to be alone in the darkness. And whatever the darkness symbolizes for you, unknowing or something you are perhaps scared of, not wanting to move so quickly past our lives toward that light that we would actually get there prematurely and perhaps, as I did Physically, also cause ourselves harm spiritually, interpersonally, relationally, because we don't know how to exist in those places in our lives that are dark. Those places where we're not bound yet to know eventually what we will know. And sometimes that rush to attain to the light, it is illusory or artificial. This whole message series is about learning to acknowledge the truth, both light and dark, of where we are in our lives at the moment so that we might grow that greater sense of wholeness that is part of our lives the moment we are born. The reason I'm also doing this message series on lights and darkness and welcoming both 
is because especially at this season and especially in various kinds of particularly American spiritualities, it could be born again Christianity. It could be sort of progressive new age. Very often you hear this dualism, this dichotomy between on the one hand what light represents and on the other hand what darkness represents. The light, pure, pristine, clear, lucid, angelic even sometimes, and the darkness represents uncertainty or unknowing or badness or fear, and even at its most extreme, something that is demonic and we should be scared of. But we also know, if we look into the reality of our lives, that lights can be harsh and darkness at times can be comforting. If we remember what it was like in the era before Now I'm starting to feel old. In the era before everything was digital, if you actually ever had the opportunity to develop a photograph, it needed to be done in a dark room. And what's the one thing you didn't do when that light was on, 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 excuse me, outside of a dark room? You didn't go in. Because overexposure will kill the thing that can only develop in the darkness. Darkness can be comforting and nurturing. At the same time, it can be very scary. There can be the fruitful darkness of our uncertainty. And so I hope that we can take our cue at this time of nature's life cycle from the darkness and the light. And to recognize that each have their place in the vast turning of our lives into that greater wholeness to which we belong. The ancient word for turning, by the way, it's a word we might be familiar with. It simply means conversion. To be converted more deeply to the wholeness of our lives, both in the light and in the shadow. So many ancient traditions at this time of the year speak to this need of both the interplay between darkness and light and not automatically banishing the darkness immediately because we don't like it with all kinds of blazing artificial lights. So many of these ancient stories, and I love these stories, and I believe they're all true. As I heard someone tell me recently, all these ancient stories are true. Some of them might have actually happened. The just completed story of Diwali, the Hindu festival of lights, the return of Lord Rama and his wife Sita from their 14 years in exile back to their kingdom, a homecoming, a hospitality, a making welcome. The Hanukkah story, the Jewish festival of lights, the reconsecration of the temple, the holiest of the holies in Jerusalem for the ancient Israelite people, the return to that place when it had been desecrated. And now with the miracle of Hanukkah, such as it's told, the eight days and eight nights of just enough oil miraculously to keep the lights burning. And of course, the Christmas story, Jesus, no room at the inn, but a little bit of room out back. In the stable. These stories have hospitality, homecoming, welcoming return at the end and at the beginning, at the end of an exile or the beginning of a journey. But I believe that the most important reunion any of us can have is not by focusing on the beginning or the end, but by focusing right here in the middle of the story, in the middle of our lives where we are, so we don't think of homecoming as some place to get to someday out there in time beyond us right now, but instead to cultivate where we are right now and recognize that this too is home, not later, but here and now. This is a kind of practice of radical hospitality with the wholeness of our lives. 
the fullness of who we are. And one of my favorite poems that talks about this is Rumi's poem simply called The Guest House. The ancient mystic Persian poet invited us to practice this radical hospitality with everything that we are. He wrote, this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor to our lives. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. Even the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Now, that last part about guide from beyond, I try not to literalize that too much, or I find myself going into how are babies made? Well, the stork brings them and delivers them, you know, a nice little napkin right there on the curb. And I don't believe, I do not believe that the ethnic cleansing armies or the drunken drivers or the stray bullet that kills the innocent bystander, that those are sent literally by a guide. I do not believe that. But still, the truth of this poem, I absolutely love and affirm, because Rumi invites us to practice hospitality with yourself. Make yourself, your house, your heart Large. Welcome in what is already there, and in this way, pay attention to your life. Don't start immediately dividing it up into, okay, this is what I like and it makes me comfortable, and this is what I don't like and it does not make me comfortable, so I'm going to disregard all that stuff, which ends up being, probably in my case, I was about 75% of my life, and I'll pay attention to that 25% that's left over here that I have deemed worthy. If we end up doing this in our lives, we compartmentalize our very existence into little predetermined understandings of what belongs and what doesn't. And we will find our lives very much like a silo. (laughs) Might contain some grain and some food, but it will be self-contained and very, very narrow, constrained and constricted. A great invitation to radical hospitality for our hearts and in our lives comes from uh, Eat, Pray, Love. Some of you I know read the book, and I preached on it this uh, past um, summer as well, too. Elizabeth Gilbert, at one point, in my favorite section of the book, which is the pray part, not surprising as much as I really do love the eat part, too, because that's about Italy. Um, but the pray part in the India, where she goes and she finds herself in the ashram and really has to confront the myriad of voices. It's not one hamster in there. It's a thousand hamsters all on crack, just running and running and running around. And she has to actually face who she is and all that's going on in her life. And as she stops resisting and pushing back and pushing back and saying, I want to get it perfect. I want to get it exactly right. Eventually, she uses one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite movies, the sheriff in Jaws, who says, finally, we're going to need a bigger boat. (laughs) That is what Rumi is talking about with the guest house, building a bigger boat in one of the languages taken from The Christian scriptures, many mansions, a guest house large enough in which our hearts can really expand beyond something narrow, tight, constricted, unkind to ourselves or unkind to each other.
to build this guest house, I got an example of this this past week in the springboard that I'm a part of called Addiction and Healing. We're reading from a book by Dr. Gerald May called very simply, except it's not at all simple, Addiction and Grace. And he gives three, he gives three representations of what I perceive to be bigger boat building towards the end of that book. He talks about three stories, all finding something unifying in these three different stories of addicts who have found a deeper peace and wholeness. One, an alcoholic steelworker, another, a sexually compulsive middle-aged man, and another, yet a young, hard-charging woman executive, each addicted, each in their own way and driven by their compulsions to have to, have to, have to feel that they are not free, constrained by their addictions. And they've worked for years on trying to get free, trying so doggedly to get free. And what Dr. May finds as the unifying piece in which they begin to day after day make that progress is in the counterintuitive capacity to no longer fight who they are. They start to recognize that beautiful. Sometimes we don't like this word in the, in the Western world, but it's absolutely necessary. That beautiful empty space. That space between the instinct that says, I am compelled to have to do that, have to take that drink, have to have that affair, have to go back to the office, have to spend five more hours there. To have that space and open up that space lovingly and gently. I love the words used, gentle but dignified. Between feeling those dark, difficult feelings and recognizing that they don't have to be acted upon. This is, of course... Much more simply said and not terribly easily done. Learning to honor what the recovery traditions call that God-shaped hole, that space in us that honors and needs higher power, higher love, higher meaning, deeper life. Dr. May calls what they are doing, these three people, in a beautiful turn of phrase, contemplative receiving. People who experienced only compulsion, the contemplative receiving is the ability to just hold the feeling and to know that I'm not going to change it immediately. And yet in the holding open of that empty space between instinct and act, that there begins to be that healing and that wholeness starts to come forward from within us. It is counterintuitive and perhaps even a paradox, but I think it is an absolutely beautiful one that when we learn in our lives to let in darkness, especially when we are afraid of it and afraid of ourselves, that at the same time that we can let in that darkness, we will also be letting in the light and letting out the light that we need simultaneously. This kind of non-dualistic seeing, of immediately taking in or expressing out our feelings, our experiences, our actions, and saying, this belongs in that category, and that belongs in that category. Just opening the space and allowing ourselves to feel it without judging ourselves. It is, I think, very scary work at times. It is also the most effective and best way that we truly can change our lives. Rachel Schaefer, in a book called Yoga for Your Spiritual Muscles, talks about this understanding of acceptance. Acceptance we can too often think as passive. Well, if I accept the truth of my life, the things I don't like, that means I'm okay with it, and it's just going to stay there, and I'll always be the same, and I'll never change, so I'm going to strive, or I'm going to avoid. She says no. 
She says this kind of acceptance is like this. Acceptance is not passivity or giving up. Rather, this kind of acceptance is an active willingness to face all aspects of our humanity. Acceptance is an acknowledgement of what is. And acceptance is an opportunity to most of all find meaning in it. Acceptance means that we embrace our capacity for change. We know that sometimes there are seasons of light and seasons of darkness in each and every one of our lives and that we are invited to learn wherever we are. It means in those moments as we talk about at one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings that that deep change, the place in which the caterpillar enters the chrysalis so that they can become a butterfly and fly in time, that is a dark place. That is a transforming place. It is a place very often of unknowing. And it just means giving ourselves permission to hold open that space while we change instead of forcing it. When we can do this work within ourselves, the wonderful news is that we can be present in the world in this way as well. We can start to let our anxious hands drop. Just, well, maybe by degree, just open a little bit. Start to be able to embrace life and ease ourselves into that larger and more loving way of being. It does not mean that we stop our discernment between what helps and what harms. It does not mean that we cease to recognize kindness from what is cruel. I believe what it helps us do is, in fact, absolutely recognize that what we are building within ourselves is a more committed, more real, more honest, more present kindness. And building within ourselves the capacity, the deep capacity to really recognize and speak against cruelty when we see it, not just when it is easy or convenient for us to do so. When we practice this radical hospitality, welcoming both light and darkness, in the end, we just notice a lot more of life. There is a lot more there, so much more abundance, and finally, so much more that we are able to care about and open our hearts to. The difference this makes is that we can be real and true spiritual friends to ourselves and to life itself. Those of you who are fans of the Westing will recognize this story that I'm going to end with today. It's told by um, Leo, President Bartlett's chief of staff, if you remember it. And Leo is um, a beautiful character, deeply flawed, deeply humane. And he tells a story once at the end of a show in which he has gone through a very dark and difficult time and is finding his way into and back into the light that is inside of him around him it tells a story about a man who's walking down a street one day and i could imagine myself doing this right now because i'm incredibly uncoordinated and falling into a very deep dark hole the guy survives the fall but recognizes that the only light he can see is that little dime sized almost circle up at the top and there's no way to get out No way that he can see, at least he cannot scale the walls. And so he just starts yelling, hello, can anybody help me? Can anyone help me get out of this hole? Keeps yelling and keeps yelling and keeps yelling. And finally, someone does come by. It's a doctor. Doctor comes by and they sort of take a look at the predicament. And this doctor pulls out a prescription pad. And they write down a prescription and drop it down the hole and move on their way. Person in the hole said, well, you know, um, There's no pharmacy down here. This is not going to help me get out. Keeps yelling, help. Can anyone help me out of here? Please. 
Another person comes by. Sees another light, another face peering in from the top. Sees it's a collar, sees it's a priest. Hey, Father, can you help me out of here? Priest takes out a pad, writes down a prayer. Says, here, maybe this will help. Throws it down and keeps moving on. Nice prayer. Doesn't help him get out. Finally, keeps yelling. A friend shows up. A face that this person recognizes. Can you please help me out? Friend looks down in the hole. Looks around. Jumps in the hole. Survives the fall. Person in the hole already said, what good is that going to do? Now we're both stuck down here. And the friend, brushing themselves off, says, yes, but I've been down in this dark hole before. And I can lead us both to the way out. Affirming that sometimes darkness is as real as light and knowing that both exist together and to know that sometimes we will all find ourselves trapped in those holes. And if we pay attention to them, we will find that wholeness being expressed from within us. And also we will know this thing. One of the deepest truths there is about finding healing and wholeness in this life, that it is only at the end of the day, only the people who are really acquainted with what the darkness looks like and feels like and smells like and tastes like and know what it's like to be afraid but know something deeper than fear, only the people who know what darkness is really like are the people who are able to lead themselves and others out into that genuine And that authentic light that is always there. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Mysterious, beautiful presence. May we sense... May we sense omnipresence in our lives wherever we are. In the light times, in the dark times, in the dusk times, in the dawn times. May we sense and know that wherever we are in our lives, there is meaning. May we have the capacity of perception and being that allows us to truly perceive, to recognize the invitation to the guest house that is our very lives. May our building that guest house and receiving visitors into it, may it be done with great love, great care, great mindfulness, even if we have to do it slowly, which is very often the best way. Let's open the doors to our guest house today. Amen.